song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And we are here to talk about how ladder matches explain wrestling. Exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, as always, right. Uh, I feel like like this whole bit about how we say this every time is becoming a bit that we do every time. So I'm going to stop it. This is it. This is it. I, I declare from this moment henceforth a moratorium on joking about uh, how every topic is an exciting topic. But yes, this is uh, this is something that that I'm really interested to talk about because in the week leading up to this recording, I've actually had to kind of sort through my feelings about this topic. I, I have many various opinions, and some of them seem to directly conflict with each other. But if you know me, that's not super surprising. <laughs> but I've I've been grappling this week. I gotta say, I, I'm just about as effective at grappling with my own thoughts as pro wrestlers are at grappling with the steps of step ladders. I don't think I like ladder matches. I like matches that have ladders in them, but I don't necessarily like matches that are based entirely around ladders. Which I think going through because what's uh, Usually we use we might use Wikipedia as a jumping off page in a literal sense or like a jumping off point I should say. Wait 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 wait. So I climbed into the computer and then I got up to the top of Wikipedia and then I jumped off of it. Yes. This is fucking awesome. This is the best episode ever. You are right. <laughs> What's cool about the ladder match Wikipedia page is that it's actually informational and they have a list of all of the matches basically ever involving a ladder match at any televised major american show and what i think is hilarious is that the wwe and tna basically have the same amount of ladder matches which i think kind of tells you all you need to know about ladder matches but i i suppose we could talk about it for another 55 minutes or so yeah certainly i think we can stretch that out a little bit <laughs> i think that, that what i looked at the same page by the way uh, i kind of started my research the same way not that starting your research with wikipedia is anything that i would teach to my students it's very much like the match of the 2000s or maybe of the first part of the 2000s I mean, you know, supposedly the first ladder match happened maybe in the early 70s, uh, you know, in Stampede or, or maybe in the early 80s uh, in England or whatever. Who knows? Uh, you know, it, it's all apocryphal history to me, I guess, but that's what makes it fun. But I mean, you didn't see one on pay-per-view until 94 here in North America, and you didn't see one on free TV until 1998. But once you get to that uh, hardy... Dudley's Edge and Christian WrestleMania 2000 match, then it's like that is the coming out party of the ladder match. And you kind of joked about they've done so many in TNA. They've done as many as they have in the WWE. But it's funny because it's like, who was the booker headed into the explosion of the ladder match in the WWF? And who was the booker for most of the run in TNA? Uh, I... I is it something to wrestle with? I, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about, so Vince Russo, right? I mean, it's like, he, I guess what I'm saying or what I'm talking around here uh, is that the ladder match really emerged when the regular match had lost all its meaning. Like when people were bored with singles matches or when the people who were writing a lot of wrestling TV didn't really understand the psychology of a singles, you know, on the mat, not super high stakes right now match. But those people maybe did understand the stakes of climbing up a ladder and falling off. And I think that that, one, that, that the ladder match was kind of was born out of this late 90s burnout in typical wrestling. 
And in some ways, the ladder match really relieved that, like those early, you know, Edge and Christian, Hardy, Dudley type matches, like obviously those are amazing, but it's, it's not too many years later. I mean, that those matches are in 2000, 2001. And like, even by 2003, like you're just seeing meaningless ladder matches looking at that list. Like, Eddie Guerrero and Tajiri against the world's greatest tag team. Like, I get that it was a 15-minute match, and it was probably really good, and uh, that, that Eddie and Tajiri won the title. But it's, like, just in retrospect, like, that happened, I guess. <laughs> and, and when I was looking through these lists of ladder matches, that was another thing that I saw, was that wrestling has kind of gone back and forth a couple of times from it being something really special to the main eventers to it's a way to do something really exciting with a lot of the mid-card guys. And it seems like it flips and flops between those two positions. Either it's a really serious, really important main event match, or it's like everybody into the pool for free swim. Yeah, and I, I, that's kind of what I was hinting at when I mentioned that I prefer matches with ladders in them to ladder matches. First couple, the first couple you mentioned, the most famous one is uh, Razor versus Sean at WrestleMania 10. That is a, though it uses the ladder a lot, it is in and of itself a good match. And more importantly to me, it is a match that required the ladder as a like narrative device because they had the dual belts going. So it made sense to have a ladder match where the both belts are hanging at the top and somebody has to go get them. It wasn't like, oh, let's just have a ladder match because that's how you blow off a feud. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're, you're getting right to the core of one of the most important things about the ladder match, like is the visual of the thing hanging up there. The idea that something is literally suspended in the heavens, like coming down from the sky from fucking God... And, you know, we mortal men have to climb up the pyramid to, uh, to reach it. Like, it's a very grandiose uh, match. You know, it's, it is very transparent in its symbolism. Yeah, it's, the stakes are literally, like, at the top of a, a, an obstacle that the people have to climb. Like, you can't get more metaf- metaphysical, am I using that correctly? Metaphysical than that. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's very, like, laden with imagery and, as you say, metaphysical, but it's also very literal. Like, it's up there, so you got to climb up the ladder from the hardware store just like you would to, you know, uh, trim the tree or whatever. <laughs> that kind of makes me laugh when you say from the hardware store, because here's the thing. That's not what an actual ladder looks like. A, an actual ladder, you can only climb up one side. Like, WWE gets specially made ladders for the ladder matches. Like, I have never been on a ladder and had somebody else climb up the other side and try to punch me while I'm, like painting a wall or something like that (laughs) yeah i i just if you're making a ladder that high i don't think the a-frame shape is practical like i've seen i want to see that i have maybe seen a 16 footer with steps up both sides like that but like it was at a home depot you know what i mean like it it was something that was that was just there for someone to overpay for but yeah i think when you're making ladders that tall in practical purposes, you're either kind of either going up like in a bucket at that point, or you're leaning the ladder against something like you you do when you're painting a house. You know what I mean? So yeah, I just don't think it's practical for ladders that big to exist in that form in the real world. Which is part of the thing is that the entire thing is a contrivance beyond the most specific issues. The Money in the Bank ladder match in particular is like the one other type. And we're not going to spend too much time talking about the Money in the Bank like cash-in, but the Money in the Bank ladder match is, 
I don't know how you feel about it, but it feels like, to me, the only ladder matches they should have. They should only have Money in the Bank ladder matches going forward. It should be its own special thing because the Money in the Bank contract is actually worth fighting seven other dudes to get to the top, uh, or girls to get to the top of a ladder. Yeah, I, I don't like Money in the Bank as much as a lot of people because I really like the Royal Rumble, and I think that Money in the Bank, it didn't kill the Royal Rumble, but it's really diminished the importance of the Royal Rumble, at least in my mind, a lot. So so Phyllis, those philosophical differences aside, the only other reason I disagree with you <laughs> uh, is because then you're leaving out the opportunity for a one-on-one ladder match. And like, just, I, I am sick of seeing guys taking turns doing spots with each other. And that's what you get in the Money in the Bank match. And that's what you get in ladder matches with four guys, six guys, eight guys. Is It's just everybody takes their turn and does their spot. And we were talking about, you know, Razor and Sean. You know, both those ver- both those matches are very much about psychology because, you know, Scott Hall flatbacks off maybe the fourth or fifth step of the ladder, you know, but, like, he is he was not a wrestler who was, you know, going to do the kind of spots that wrestlers today do. Number one, because he didn't have the body type for it. Number two, because he didn't have the desire for it. And number three, because his approach to the business was such that you never did that shit like that. Uh, But I mean, he was still capable of having great ladder matches. And I think that's what we're missing in the 21st century with with all these multi-man, you know, taking turns, doing spots matches. We're missing that psychology of a great one-on-one ladder match and how there is this whole built-in story, not only of setting up the ladder, uh, but of, you know, denying the climb attempts and stuff. It's way more dramatic when it's just two people. Because when you've got eight guys or women, because they do the women's money in the bank match now too, if you have eight wrestlers and one of them is climbing up the ladder, like you start filing through your head. You're like, okay, Kofi died on this spot. And, you know, this guy just did this. And you literally start going down the list and clicking them all off. And then you're like, oh, okay, it's going to be Matt Hardy. And then all of a sudden Matt Hardy shoots up you know, from the front of the screen uh, and through the fourth wall, climbs up the ladder and knocks the other guy off. It's just like that stuff is, I hate when people complain about wrestling being predictable because like all media and all entertainment is formulaic in certain ways. So it's not the predictability part, it's the repetitiveness part. Yeah, that you know that a spot is coming because a spot has to come, not because it actually makes sense within the context of the story. Yeah, exactly. That They have 20 minutes, and that means that, you know, they're going to kind of pay lip service to to some kind of general brawling and strategizing in the opening minutes. But by the five-minute mark, like, people are expecting a huge spot every two to three minutes at this point. And I just- it almost feels like when you're watching a movie and you think the end has happened, but you know for a fact there's 20 to 25 minutes left in the movie, like, that can't be the ending of the movie because shit has to happen after it. That's kind of what it feels like. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and then usually when the finish is coming, once again, it's very easy to call, which isn't always a problem. If you watch a lot of wrestling matches, you you probably know when the finishes are coming. Um, but I find it harder to suspend disbelief uh, in a lot of those multi-man ladder matches. Uh, what I, I think they've gotten better at is like allowing someone like Braun Strowman to win. It's not just always the most athletic guy. It is also like the guy that can take the most punishment now, where that used to just be a character in the story of a ladder match was the dude that took the biggest bump. Where like Braun Strowman literally had the entire other seven guys in the match try to murder him with a and like 
bury him under a pile of ladders and then he came back like that was actually a well-constructed story using ladders and a giant monster person yeah and i mean and that's just a classic multi-man match uh, storytelling strategy that predates the ladder match by 20 30 years i mean that that's like andre in the battle royal right is the built-in psychology of it you know andre you know the, the built-in story is who goes out at the end that's built-in story number one, like who wins. But built-in story number two was like, how are they going to handle Andre? So, so yeah, I think that, you know, once again, that's not necessarily a ladder match innovation. That's just something that works about wrestling. And I guess the more and more that I've been thinking about ladder matches and the reason I say I have mixed feelings is that I think across the board, that that's kind of what we see, that like the ladder match is the height of the wrestling trope on a, both literal vertical height. But also, like you were saying, just like taking advantage of these different storyline ideas. Like, okay, you've got the big man, so now we can do the Andre thing. Okay, you've got a bunch of little guys, so we're going to do a lot of jumps off of stuff. Um, You know, okay, you've got tag teams in there, so we're going to do a bunch of double team moves. Like, they literally, within the framework of a ladder match, can take all these different things that do work. And because a, a ladder match is basically, at this point a no rules balls to the wall. Let's do everything we can match up. So it's, it's, it's kind of in some ways the height of everything that's good about wrestling, but in other ways, it's kind of the height of the concept of, of burning the town of, of doing too much. You know what I mean? Of of leaving nothing left to want. And sometimes when I watch these big, uh, like money in the bank ever since, well, when they used to do it at uh, WrestleMania every year, it's like even in years when those weren't great matches, that is very hard for the rest of the show to follow. Even if the even if the Money in the Bank match or even if the multi-man ladder match is filled up with people of relatively low importance on the card, it's hard for the main event to follow because they're going to do so many bumps and they're going to do much bigger bumps than what you're going to see in the featured one-on-one main event. So like I said, it's like... It's great because it's the height of everything, but it's also like kind of cheating. It's just taking all the good stuff and kind of like glomming it all together and be like, yeah, big, big, huge ladder match. Everybody's going to love it. Five stars. What you see is a transition from, and this will be next week's topic, mystery fiction style, like a genre fiction to an action movie where it's just fucking explosions everywhere. And I think the big change is like you mentioned, the TLC matches where it was just, and those are, in my opinion, I don't know how you feel about them, really good matches, but in the same way that like Die Hard is actually, or I believe Die Hard to be a good movie, like a well-constructed movie that tells a good story, and then everything became Die Hard in a blank. And I think that's kind of what happened with the TLC style matches, because what was great about the ladder matches that came before it for the most part is that they were ladder matches that dealt with ladders. It was almost like, and this is a weird, uh, like thing to pull. Uh, the, there was the chair match. I think it was like Batista and Umaga and you were only allowed to use chairs during the chairs match. And the way that that match ended is somebody used something that wasn't a chair and got disqualified. I almost wish you could go back to only ladders being legal in a ladder match, as opposed to them being this kind of like cluster fuck, no DQ thing. Right. Right. But then you'd have to like be consistent about the rules and the way things work and stuff. And I mean, that's just like, that's just way too much responsibility. Not fun at all. (laughs) 
And I think that's kind of what happened with action movies is action movies were just like, oh, we'll just have fucking explosions. And it was like, no, but what's cool about Die Hard is him like cutting his feet and having to deal with that, not doing the Rambo thing of burning shit into his art. Like, like they took the Rambo craziness and applied it to a well-constructed action movie and that became every action movie. And and it was the same thing, even within the context of the TLC matches, which are these, like, fundamental... If, if you look, the way they escalate, it goes from, like, a totally cool... Because it originally started, for the most part, with the crazy ladder match for the uh, Terry Invitational Tournament between the Hardy Boys and Edge and Christian. It's, like, a really famous match in both of those teams and all four of those performers' careers. And it's just a ladder match. But I remember watching that live and actually, like, turning to someone and being like, that was one of the best things I've ever seen. Like, I wasn't expecting it to be great, and it was so mind-blowingly good. And then what happens is you have the TLC matches and they raise the expectations of what you can do in a match. So it's just, like... Yeah, you had Jeff Hardy dive through like six tables. Of course, like you can't follow that up with anything because like eight tables is too much. What you see in TNA is they they have both ladder matches in a traditional sense with, and this is important, the talent to pull a lot of that shit off in a way that was sincerely spectacular. But then they also have, and, and on the Wikipedia page, I think they're listed differently. They also have like the King of the Mountain match which i don't totally i've only seen one or two can you explain a little bit of what the king of the mountain match was holy smoke um so the king of the mountain match was another multi-man concept but a singles concept um they they did it i think it was like three uh was it slammiversary or bound for glory where they where they did those uh either way it was one of the big tna pay-per-views it was always a title match and the idea is you have a bunch of guys and um it's a, it's a free-for-all and there's kind of two stages of the match so first, you have to get a pinfall or submission. You have to beat somebody. Uh, then, once you have a uh, uh, gotten a pinfall or submission, you have thereby earned the right to take the belt, climb up the ladder, and hang the belt on a hanger. So it was it was kind of dubbed a reverse ladder match. Also, if you submitted or took a pinfall, there was a penalty box, which was like the the, the, the last battle of Atlanta shark cage. Like if you, uh, if you took a pinfall or if you submitted to someone, you went in the penalty box for a set amount of time and were kind of out of the match for a while. So it was a big cluster mess because basically they couldn't go home until everybody had qualified to hang the belt. Like there would be times where there would be one person, but, but as often as not, it would be just about everybody would, you know, get that pinfall or submission to earn the right to hang the belt. So you had to go through kind of all that rigmarole and then you would say, okay, everybody's gotten a pinfall. Now we can finally get to the finish. Or that's my memory of watching them. <laughs> no, and, and the one I watched, and it was Slammiversary, uh, the one I watched, yeah, it's 2005, 2006, 2000. It's basically two, th- 2005 through 2009 and then 2015, they do another one. And yeah, I, I, that was my memory too. And I think what happens is they kind of want to make a very simple idea. Shockingly, it's TNA way more complicated than it needs to be. And that's, that's the other way to go with it is you can either make a, you can turn it into like an action movie with a bunch of twists and shit, or you can keep it as big fucking explosion thing. And I, I, it lost what was, good about a ladder match was figuring out who was going to get to the top and how they were going to get the the thing that was hanging like that was just completely lost yeah i one thing i will say in tna's defense 
is that they have had 45 ladder matches in the history of TNA slash Impact. And number 41 of those happened in August of 2014. So it is something that they've gotten away from doing in the last couple of years. And certainly under the new management, it hasn't been as much of a thing. But once again, I think it kind of gets back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the show with Vince Russo. Like, like that off and on for most of TNA's run, like Vince Russo was someone with a hand in the book. And I think that as long as he was there, he was always going to be convincing those in charge that a normal singles match wasn't good enough or that a normal tag match wasn't good enough. You had to get more people in there because let's not forget that's how Vince Russo has always ingratiated himself to the talent, right? It's the something for everybody. Even if not a, not a lot of it is very good, he was, he was amazing at making the roster feel loved up, making everybody think that they were a part of something. But that really kind of flattened out the ladder match. Like I said, it's something that, you know, in its early days was really about like the super feud. Like you said, either either the ultimate title feud, you got two belts, you need to solve it. Or, you know, it's it's for a whole wad of cash or it's for a contract and the other guy's fired. Like some big idea like that. But in that kind of Vince Russo TNA era, you definitely saw just, you know, all that stuff flattened out and rendered so meaningless. Like more and more guys just piled in the ring. And as you say before, I I definitely want to say that those matches were almost always just filled with some of the best talent in the world, trying their best in the time given to, to get themselves over individually and to get TNA over. So it certainly wasn't for lack of effort on the talents part, but I think that the people who were in charge just saw the ladder match as as something awesome where you could get away with a lot because there's really no rules to it. Like I was saying, it's just, just a lot of lazy writing. And that's what brings down all television shows, really, or most television shows that fail. It's because of lazy writing. Yeah, I was actually going to say, it's an intellectual shortcut for just having a uh, having something like we said it's a literal representation of high stakes and like when those stakes are actually when the stakes actually meet the metaphor it's amazing stakes that they had with the uh for the IC title match at the greatest Royal rumble uh was that match was great and they had the horses to do it they had four really great performers uh, in particular, for a ladder match, because you have Samoa Joe, who's kind of the heavy, uh, and, and, and like you, it's both symbolically and physically, uh, and then you have the Miz, who's like the dastardly chicken shit heel, and then you have Finn and Seth, who are these amazing athletic baby faces, and like the like if you were to construct a baby face from the ground up, those are the type of guys you would create, and it created this really interesting dynamic, and the story was more so about the dynamic than it was about the ladder itself. That is just the perfect way of summarizing it. Not to put you over too hard there. Don't don't let your head get too big. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it really is like Seth and Finn were the Hardy boys. Samoa Joe is the Dudley boys. Miz is Edge and Christian. And, and when people, we've talked about how those, you know, the ladder matches, you know, the Terry Invitational Tournament matches, uh, the, uh, the triple threats ladder match, and then the TLCs that followed, um, all of those were about that contrasting characters. And I think that's one of the subtleties that was really lost during that time frame we've been talking about where ladder matches were really burned out and overdone is people saw those matches and they saw Jeff jumping off of big high stuff. 
and they saw a uh, Christian, you know, taking every big spot off of the ladder. And they saw Matt, you know, rolling around, clutching at his midsection, selling that, you know, he, he was really, really hurt. And like, they just kind of thought like, oh yeah, they're, they're doing wrestling stuff. And it's like, no, that's not the case at all. It's about the characters. It's about the fact that Edge and Christian are opportunists and that they're lazy, that they want to do the minimal amount of work to win. And anytime one of the other teams would set up a great spot, they would swoop in and steal it from him. It would be like the Hardy boys would set up the, the Dudleys and then Edge and Christian would come over and kick the Hardys in the nuts and then give the Dudley boys whatever move the Hardys were going to do. Like it was about that opportunism. It was about being the heels in much the same way that Miz is a great heel. And for the Hardys, it wasn't just about jumping off stuff. It was about the like devil may care attitude. It was about that Jeff Hardy thing, that crazy insano charisma that he has. And like, just cause a guy does a big move off a ladder uh, doesn't mean that he's as charismatic as Jeff Hardy and that his performance will be as effective as a prime Jeff Hardy's performances where it just like it's so much of it. I think they ignore that what makes the ladder match great, like what makes all important wrestling matches great is the psychology of the interplay between the characters is the way that you take different characters and put them together and tell a story with them. That's true to all of the characters. But when people see those those early ladder matches now, sometimes it like freaks me out. It's like they just see the spots. They don't see like, no, the way all three of these teams play it is so true to their character from start to finish. The Dudley boys don't do a single spot that should be the Hardy boys. And the Hardy boys don't do a single spot that should be Edge and Christians. And Edge and Christian don't do a single spot that should be the Dudleys. Yeah, and I think um, the other, and this is actually, I believe, a five-star match, according to Dave Meltzer. It happened... God, uh, two, like a half a month before, right before WrestleMania was the NXT North American Championship match. The It was the one, two, three, four, five, six man. It was Adam Cole defeated EC3, Ricochet, Velveteen Dream, Killian Dane, and Lars Sullivan. Although I like the Seth Rollins-Finn Balor match more, that also had legitimate stakes. It was an entirely new title, and the person that won was... Maybe the best young heel. It, it worked perfectly. Like, they actually built a story. Ricochet's amazing. Velveteen Dream blows everybody's mind. Killian Dane and Lars Sullivan do the big guy spots. And Adam Cole comes in and wins it. But he doesn't win it in a cheap way. He wins it in a, like, you're pissed off that he won kind of way. And that that's a, it's a similar idea of, like, they actually worked the character's into the into the match even ec3 takes some of the worst bumps in the match and that's because that character only works if he eats shit as hard as you possibly can like it is such a well-constructed match because they actually take the time to use the characters in the story to build towards a finish that makes sense for everyone involved and everybody looks great Hell yeah. And can I, can I, can I point out one thing that's bothering me that we haven't mentioned yet? Go right ahead. The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Thank you very much. It's been bothering me that we have been waiting all the way to the end of our shows to talk about patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. Let's get it out of the way now while people are still <laughs> listening. Let's tell them about Patreon. 
are we going to climb that ladder now and grab the briefcase? Yeah. We are going to climb that ladder all the way down from the lowly ground, no patrons, to the $1 and $2 levels. My goodness, Nick, let me tell you about the $1 and $2 levels. $1 or $2 a month. Nick, are you doing anything else of, of consequence that you, you can't spare $1 or $2 a month? Uh, no. <laughs> No, absolutely not, right? Everybody out there can spare one or two dollars a month, gosh darn it. And let me tell you something, brother. When you become a patron of How Wrestling Explains the World, you're not just throwing your money out there from content or for content. You are a true patron of the arts because we are doing something here at How Wrestling Explains the World that nobody else is doing because nobody else can do it, baby. You got Nick over there. You got the perfect blend of the planning and the in-the-minute execution. You got me over here talking off the top of my head for all the live long day about total fucking bullshit. What more perfect product is there out there? I mean, come on. Nobody else could do this. We bring a level of depth to the conversation nobody else does. They're out there talking about news because they ain't got nothing better to talk about. They're out there reviewing shows because it's the only level that they understand wrestling on is whether or not they fucking liked it. We know our shit. We're talking not just about wrestling, but about so many different topics out there. We're talking about literature. We're talking about art. We're talking about politics. We're talking about sociology. We're talking about your motherfucking mother. So get on patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W and sign your ass up at the $1 or $2 level. At that $1 level, you'll get the show a little early, pretty fucking badass because you can get to it first and then you can act like you knew all the shit. So when your other friends listen, you're like, oh yeah, I wasn't so impressed by that. Yeah, I already knew that. Oh yeah, you can finish their sentences and make yourself seem way smarter than them. At the $2 level, you're also going to get some show notes and that's going to take a little key. It's going to put it in our ears and open up our brain and you will be inside our crazy, terrible, fucked up minds. And you will see what it takes to put together one of these shows. You will see all the arrows and sub points and bullets. You will see all the references to matches on YouTube. You will see every little corruption that Nick and I throw at each other on route to this clusterfuck each week. So... Let me spit it at you one more time. Patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W, as in How Wrestling Explains the World, the name of the show you're listening to, the one or the $2 level, baby. Uh, you also forgot that I color code the uh, Google Docs. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I just <laughs> I just wanted to mention that I do color code because I do have really bad OCD. The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. And I, like I said, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that was the best. I don't think it was worth five stars. But I think if you're looking for that kind of match, that is a five star match. That is as good your of a multi man ladder match as you're going to get in the modern age. And as you as as you said, I think the new title is like the perfect excuse to kind of just get a bunch of guys who are really good in the ring and like do a bunch of moves. Like I said, that's kind of flimsy. New title is the perfect excuse to do that, and it's not flimsy. Yeah, because it's. It's the best way to actually get a new title on somebody and have them earn it in a way that doesn't feel arbitrary. That it's just like, oh, why are these eight guys? Oh, this guy happened to be loaded up against, loaded up, matched up against this guy, and he—that's a bad matchup for him. Where this is kind of like you can all build to a spot where. 
is going to get the title. You kind of know going in he's going to get the title, but there's also the chance, like, oh, it might be Velveteen Dream, because that that also had the right level of stars. Like, the only person you could not see getting it was Killian Dane, and it wasn't that Killian Dane isn't talented enough, is that he was going to be leaving. So, like, that was the reason he wasn't going to get it. But I, I think what you see with that match and you see with the match at the greatest Royal Rumble is that they have finally started to once again understand that it's about the match itself, not, oh, not, sorry, not the match, that the people involved and the the stakes of the actual thing they're trying to get at, not how many tables they can go through on top of climbing how many ladders. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think you're right. And I, I think that once again, NXT is, is usually the place where you kind of see this logical stuff happening. So I almost take it with a grain of salt. Well, it's like, because, well, yeah, of course NXT can pull. Well, but I think that's part of the, they have actual, and it reminds me a lot of uh, the women's division too. I'm not going to go too much on a tangent where the actual, the stakes feel like stakes because they don't have all of this baggage behind them of being the WWE men's division for the last 50 years where there's been a thousand ladder matches because NXT is allowed to do and, and what you, you see a lot more in the Indies. Like uh, if you don't get a chance, you haven't seen them go watch if you can find them ladder wars the ladder wars between kevin steen and uh el generico and they have a feud uh and it it builds and builds and builds to these ladder matches and those are great ladder matches because they're about two men wanting to destroy each other and i i think the ladder is almost secondary it is a means by which they can destroy each other less so than like uh a, a way to climb to the top to get some sort of symbol it's that they're able to destroy each other with something that we've become very comfortable with and aware of as a thing that like they push an interesting part of the ladder match, which is the brutality of the ladder as a weapon without making it entirely like it is also about their hatred of each other. Yeah, sure. No, I I think that's really important. And I think that's something, this is someone who I, I don't oft compliment, so uh, so 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 enjoy it while you can. Is a uh, one person I, I've seen do things like that with the weapons, although I, I'm trying to file through my brain. I think I've seen him do it with a ladder, particularly. But anyway, is Dean Ambrose, and I think there have been times where like Dean Ambrose has gone over the top and done like a lot of really goofy stuff with a lot of props. I'm thinking specifically of there was a SmackDown Christmas match a couple years ago between him and Bray Wyatt or he and Bray Wyatt, where they were literally like Irish whipping each other into Christmas trees and transparently empty cardboard boxes and stuff like that. And I hated it. But at other times he is someone who, who brings that like respect for brutality, which is something that I think the WWE has kind of tried to legislate out of their ring and, and it's something that is really essential to make the whole gimmick match or weapons match, whatever you want to call it, concept work, is that this stuff is more dangerous. And because these more dangerous tools are available, then dastardly people or people who really hate each other and have real, uh, really want to do each other harm, they will find worse things to do with each other. It shouldn't be about, quote unquote, what they can do. It should be about what they will do. Yeah. Like you shouldn't be excited for what they can do. You should be worried about what they will do. Yeah, it, it should be, there should be a real sense of danger that people are going to get hurt 
while you're watching, not in a not in a way that you're like, oh my god, they're going to blow out a knee. Though I personally, every time I watch a ladder match, I'm afraid someone's going to blow out a knee. Oh, it's like that ultimate. It's like that ultimate X spot where the guy's dangling, or when they're on the ladder and someone just pulls one leg and they go down and they land flat-footed in the middle of the ring. It's like every time I see that, I'm like, one of these days, I'm going to see someone's knee explode. Yeah, and it's Jim Cornette ruined that shit. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I think, and I actually kind of wanted to talk about how um, the scaffold match kind of plays with the same concepts of danger, but is such a limiting idea because it's so actually dangerous that it kind of just, sh- and this is, they can that would happen before ladder matches became prominent. Like you said, um, in the seventies and early eighties, they were happening in stampede periodically, but like the scaffold match kind of begot on some level, the ladder match th- uh, or not begot, but it kind of informed what you can't do in a ladder match because you watch the old scaffold matches and your mileage may vary. I don't know how you feel about scaffold matches, but I watching them. I'm always just like, yeah, you can't really do anything. (laughs) Like you can only do so much without being like, Oh my God, I'm going to fall. Oh my God, I'm going to fall. Oh my God, I'm actually going to fall. No, even the famous one, even the road warriors against the midnight express. It's like when you watch, it's like it, it doesn't, I mean, if you were in the crowd live, you wouldn't have noticed this. But on the TV camera, it really fucking hurts Hawk's mystique that he's clearly terrified to be anywhere near the edge. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Hawk, like the biggest, scariest looking son of a bitch, like, they just sort of like, uh, the, the, if, if you, exactly. If you if you ask someone, you know, uh, draw a crazy white person on cocaine who's going to hurt you, <laughs> uh, they would probably draw someone who who looked a lot like Road Warrior Hawk, and it did not help him to be trembling. Or I think of um the 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 one that's famous for being really bad, the uh, the the one with PN News and Steve Austin in it, where like PN <laughs> News, who like barely should have been standing flat footed in the middle of the ring, is you know elevated whatever it is, fifteen twenty feet above the ring. And literally moving like a quarter of an inch at a time. It's it's so hard to watch. And I think what the ladder match did is the ladder match found a way to simulate 75, I shouldn't even say 75, to simulate 65% of the same danger while also turning up the number of interesting things that could conceivably happen. Because really in the scaffolding match or the scaffold match, the, uh, the only interesting thing that was going to happen was when someone took a bump like off the scaffolding. Everything other than that sucks. Like there, there's a couple of guys who will try to give each other, you know, like a little uh, very, very safe, like little snap suplex up there or like, you, you know, a, a sunset flip or whatever, but it's like so gentle looking and stupid and unrealistic that the only conceivable interesting thing that was going to happen was someone falling and probably hurting themselves. But the ladder match, by the ladder match, by having those like stairs that you could actually climb up more incrementally, like, I don't know, it's once again, making it more about increments and not literally starting at the top of the mountain and just falling off. It's better psychology. Yeah. And uh, Dave can attest, I am like deathly afraid of heights. Like I have straight up panic attacks, like actual full blown head between the legs panic attacks when I'm anywhere high at all. So, like, watching those matches actually make, like, triggers my fear of heights. And watching, and I think what the X Division, the, uh, that's what, not the X Division, what is it? Ultimate X. Ultimate X match does. It becomes, like, the platonic ideal of what the scaffold match could have been. Because you do have that sense of danger, but it's, the match isn't, 
taking entire entirely and taking place on top of the scaffold. The scaffold is there to hold something. It is not there to hold the performers per se. Uh, yes. I mean, and I, I found those ultimate X matches really hard to watch after that time. Daniels almost died. Uh, when he was suicide and he and somebody were up on the top of the X kind of getting into position to do some kind of like side effect or cutter or neck breaker off the thing. And I mean, like he just fell to the back of his head and neck in the middle of the ring. And it was one of those moments where I remember watching a pay-per-view and it was, it, it was, it, I was legitimately scared that I had just seen someone die. Like it was really bad. And after that, I didn't really care to watch those ultimate X matches anymore. I saw one in person at the Slammiversary that was in Boston, whatever year that was. Um, that one was relatively tame in terms of climbing the structure. And like, I was very glad of it. Like those, those kind of matches make, that's not even taking a bump. That's falling and attempting to fall with style to like borrow a line from Toy Story. But that's not even a bump anymore. That's just a fall. And I don't care to see that. And and it also was a thing where, like, Christopher Daniels is one of the most talented performers, like, physically, in terms of agility and stuff like that, like a a, a top-of-the-line, top 5-10% kind of guy. And to see him take that bump, you understand, like, the gravity of what you're watching. Like, AJ Styles used to be in those matches all the time. And again, there's a difference between taking a bump from really high and falling and trying not to die. And, and that... The X Division, the Ultimate X match, sorry, the Ultimate X match is kind of like an evolution away from the, it is a split in the, it's not about incremental height, like incremental danger, it's about that feeling of danger but only at specific times like it 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 gives you the it is closer to like the 75 percent of the scaffold match it's funny you keep bringing up uh incremental because uh one of the weird conceits or i don't want to call it weird but one of the conceits of a ladder match is how fucking long it takes to climb a ladder (laughs) (sighs) rung one (laughs) rung two (laughs) etc yes uh and that is an important part of what makes it work though is you kind of have to establish why someone can't climb the ladder quickly or they're just going to climb the ladder quickly and i think what one of a lot of matches that fail as ladder matches are the ones that don't explain why a dude doesn't just climb up a ladder as quickly as he possibly can and it's it's because if you climb up to the ladder really quickly when everybody's fresh, you're going to get punched or knocked the fuck off of it. Yeah, they, they do that tease in every match now. It used to be forever that that was like the lingering question, what if someone just run up, ran up the ladder? Now, every time they do it, they have someone amble up and then everybody just pulls them down and like shake hands them out of the ring. Like Dave will just hit X and it will tip over the ladder while I'm trying to climb it. Like, that's what happens. <laughs> exactly. Or I would climb up the other side of the ladder, hit square, hit square, hit square, and then hit X and give you a superplex or something. Yeah, and it just... it, it is, 30 seconds into that. Yeah, and it's way <laughs> too high of a risk thing to do until everybody else is down. But the thing is, especially in multi-man matches, you are never left unscathed by the time everybody is down. That's why you're tired at the end. Because if you've just been beating the crap out of, of of like five people for the last 20 minutes and then try to climb a ladder, 
you're going to actually be tired. Maybe not as tired as they make them out to be, but it's not going to be an easy thing. You just like leisurely climb the ladder. And usually guys that do win are the freshest people who didn't get thrown through a ladder or off of a ladder through a table. It's the person that like hid the best or did the last second... Somebody else got murdered, and then they murdered the murderer. <laughs> that's a good way of saying it. It, it, it. Quite often, that's the finish they go with now, where it's like it's like a, a baby face and two heels, and like one of the heels will either deny the heel or deny the baby face or deny both of them and then steal it. Or sometimes it'll even be the baby face denying two heels and stealing it now. But like the fi- once again, the finishes are more often than not like, someone quote-unquote stealing it from someone else. And that's uh, it, and it's actually a smart way to build, uh, for instance, one of, the, one of the better feuds that went absolutely fucking nowhere uh, ever in the history of the WWE for me was the Damian Sandow-Cody Rhodes feud because the actual like crux of that, which is Cody Rhodes almost getting the Money in the Bank contract and then Damian Sandow screwing him out of it, was such a good spot. It gave them an instant feud after they were a pretty hot tag team for a while, and they were actually getting over. It it, it strapped a jetpack to both of them that they then set each other on fire with. <laughs> so it, I, I, my mind's kind of blown right now because you just brought up a great question in my mind, and I told you I, I've been kind of grappling with the ladder match all week, so let me just put it like straight to you. So is it possible that the ladder match is simultaneously like the height of quote unquote excitement in wrestling in that sort of like high spot style uh, that people love, but at the same time, is it kind of a heel gimmick? Like are most of the satisfying finishes that logically make sense a heel screwing someone else? I mean, I guess it's either straight, the baby face hits his move on everybody, climbs up, celebrates yay, or it's, it's gotta be someone getting screwed. But as much as it's like a really exciting match, it almost feels like a match that's like, designed for heels to me all gimmick matches are designed for heels that's probably fair that's probably fair because the whole idea was to get out of clean finishes right <laughs> yeah the only one that isn't and and that's not really the case anymore were cage matches like cage matches were the one gimmick where like you got it so you didn't have to and then i mean in 86 the four horsemen ruined that shit like their heels Heels always have an advantage when rules aren't uh, aren't enforced because they are the ones that are inherently willing to go farther. It is part of, especially in the way that nobility is articulated in wrestling, taking any shortcut at all is not a face move. It may not necessarily be a heel move, but it takes away every time a face takes a shortcut of any kind, it diminishes them in some way. Even if it's not just winning, it, it not just winning a match with a pin or a submission. And I, I think, so yeah, I think the ladder match in particular because of the nature of it is probably the most heel because you have to screw the other person. You have to screw the other person in some way, shape, or form, out of the victory. Wow, so you just caught me. I was I was putting all this blame on uh, Vince Russo earlier, and you just explained, like, a total Vince McMahon psychology to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, where do you think he got, like, where do you think he got that part of it? It's like, Vince, 
Vince knows what he's doing in terms of that. He accepts the premises of what he's doing, especially now, especially the modern version of Vince, is very willing to antagonize the audience. And we talked about this a while ago with Hogan. He was always willing to do it. It was just way less explicit in the in the during the Hulkamania era because of the ways in which we were made to think about Hulk Hogan. That Hulk, but Hulk Hogan, and this is something else we've talked about, is one of the biggest heels to ever be a babyface. He was a bad guy. He did shitty things to his friends. He cheated to win matches. But he was the perfect example of like the ways in which framing change the way that you, especially in a political messaging sense, change the way you can think about an idea or a person. And I, I, I think what you see with the modern ladder match is that they've kind of figured out a way to balance that by having, if for instance, Seth Rollins winning the ladder match was the closest I think I've ever seen to a babyface victory because he jumps to, like, if I remember correctly, jumps to the ladder. Like he does a spectacular thing and then beats out the babyface by, I think it's Finn. It's been a long time. Uh, they both climb up. It, it is someone actually, like, earning it. But that was not possible when, like, even, like you said, Scott Hall wasn't taking a bump higher than the fourth rung. Like, that wasn't going to happen. Wrestling itself has become so much more athletic and spectacular that you can now use the ladder as a prop or and a stage to do something onto as opposed to having it be a mechanism through which you screw somebody over. Yeah, definitely. And when you talk about using it as a stage, it brings me back to the Wikipedia page for ladder matches. When you look at the top four people uh, in terms of all time WWE ladder match victories, they are Jeff Hardy, Rob Van Dam, Matt Hardy, and Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho has been kind of 50, 50 or maybe 60, 40, you know, babyface heel. But when you talk about Matt, Jeff, and RVD, you're talking about guys who are basically career babyfaces. And, like, these guys have racked up wins in these matches, but it's more that they've used them as a stage. Like we were talking about before, like, it wasn't just that Jeff Hardy, like, jumped off, like, tall stuff and was in all those ladder matches, and those ladder matches were good because they, they did a lot of moves. Like, it was because the ladder match was the perfect showcase, was the perfect theater, was the perfect arena for everything that Jeff Hardy did, whether it was jumping off of tall stuff, whether it was, you know, selling agony, whether it was being screwed with his pants off time and time again, which is like really like as much as Jeff Hardy is at the top of the list for victories, I think of all the times Jeff Hardy got screwed. I think of all the times he reached up for the belt and the crowd popped really big and then Edge speared him off the ladder or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it, it really is the... Whether you're you're a babyface or a heel, a ladder match really is a, a very specific, very different arena where you can, as you've been talking about, because of the sort of inherent psychology of the match, I think that that certain performers can can really uh, really grow larger. Because I mean, like I think that the Hardys are perfect examples of like if not for the ladder match. Uh, would they have had the same career if not for the ladder match? Like that's a stupid, that's a stupid thing. It shouldn't have anything to do with it, right? They're both great wrestlers. They're, you know what I mean? They, they have people with a lot of passion. Matt is a, one of the great minds in, in the last 25 years. And Jeff is the most over wrestler I've ever seen in my entire life. 
moreover, as far as I'm concerned, at his peak than Stone Cold. That dude was bananas over, and it's because he did wild shit. He did the craziest stuff you've ever seen and didn't make it look routine, but didn't make it look like it was faked in any way. He looked so realistic doing it. He had such physical gravitas because of his willingness to just jump off of or do fucking anything. And I think that, and the same thing with Rob Van Dam, but Rob Van Dam, I feel like is different because he's such a spectacular physical specimen and athlete. Jeff Hardy's jumps were almost all his charisma in a weird way. Despite the fact that he was an incredible athlete, the what the things he did, the lack of fear he showed at the top of a ladder, like I again, very afraid of heights. He does the like gun salute thing, weird like bang it's not even bang bang, it's just like the I'm crazy daredevil gun. No, it's thing. the it's the Yes. <laughs> he does that at the top of the ladder that's like 30 feet at WrestleMania 20 or 18 or whichever one the second TLC matches are. Like, he does that because he he's not afraid of the moment he's in or the place he is at that the stage he's on. That He's not afraid of that stage. And that's what makes him spectacular more so than the actual thing itself is the complete lack of fear of what he's doing and i think that's the way you can be a baby face and i think we talked about last week um how a lot of people were inspired by Shawn michaels and i think they were inspired by Shawn michaels in terms of the in ring but i think the charisma and the general like aura of a daredevil comes from that jeff hardy school of just like you have to do spectacular shit with a fucking smile on your face and it'll get over yeah I would say that really the whole mid card are kind of Jeff Hardy's children in 2018. And I, and I, I don't necessarily mean that either as a slight to the people I'm talking about or to Jeff Hardy. Uh, if anything, it's a credit to Jeff Hardy, but, but I think that really, you know, if you want to look at, let's say, let's say like that WrestleMania 18 period, if you look at how triple H and stone cold and the rock were wrestling versus how the Hardys were wrestling this in 2018 is really the Hardys WWE in terms of in-ring style. And I, I think that's why the Undertaker Jeff Hardy match works so well because it's this like old school versus new school coming together. I, I hate to use those terms, but it is like kind of a, it, it that's when it became his special match. And I think that's why that's such a resonant match, despite the fact that it happened on a raw in man, God bless Manchester, New Hampshire, but in Manchester, New ha- Hampshire on like a random July day. Yeah. I think that match is a really great example of like the theater of the ladder that we've been talking about. And I think that there was what those two did in the ring. And like you said, there Jeff Hardy's unique charisma that was like perfectly suited for the latter. And then on the other hand, you had a very explicitly crafted narrative, you know, on the part of Jim Ross that was all about Jeff Hardy becoming a main event player. And like we've been talking about throughout this episode off and on, like Jeff Hardy is a true baby face. He's someone that like, people really do believe in and someone that people kind of project onto that he's not just like a wrestler that they like he like really stands for something like even if that thing isn't necessary doesn't have necessarily anything to do with the actual jeff hardy in real life like the character is somehow aspirational even if you know that the real jeff hardy has had his struggles and fallen down a few times like 
the, the character just still really represents that sort of like no limits attitude, no fear attitude that you were talking about. And what better showcase for that than the ladder match? What better opponent for that than the undertaker, who's the biggest generator of fear and, and what better accompaniment for that than Jim Ross, who really was someone who was very canny and whether it was ahead of time or whether it was just in the moment could recognize those beats playing out and really call it as it was. And I think when you bring all those elements together of the perfect baby face and Hardy, the perfect opponent, you know, experienced opponent and undertaker, the perfect setting with the ladder and New Hampshire, of course, being the perfect setting for all things. <laughs> uh, and, and the voice of Jim Ross layered on top of that. I mean, that, that, that match is a pretty magical little formula. But again, it just, oh, it frustrates me so much how the ladder match just hotwires the whole formula. Like, it's such a shortcut to me. I, I have just such mixed feelings because, like, at the end of the day, like, I love normal matches. <laughs> just, like, pinfall or submission in the middle of the ring with disqualifications. Like, I... I just really believe in the rules, which I know is like the lamest thing that anybody has ever said, especially about pro wrestling. But like as as a writer, I guess I believe in structure. And the second you start taking away structure to quote unquote giving to 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 give yourself freedom, you're you're eating your own arm. You know what I mean? That like if that's the only way that you can give yourself creative freedom, then I really don't think you're creative at all. So, so on one hand, that match, amazing, perfect, everything together. But at the same time, what a great example of how frustrating ladder matches are to me because like, I just want all of us, I, I just want that Hardy and Taker and JR. I want just all of them in a normal ass match where no one has to fall 15 feet or anything like that. And, and if Jeff had won, cause he didn't win the, the match against Taker, he got a handshake, I think, but, <laughs> and a pat on the back, but if he had won that match, Go get him, it, Tiger. it would have been devalued almost inherently because he won his own match, the match that is his specialty, where if he had won just a normal match, it would have been this profound statement about Jeff Hardy as a character and as a performer long term for the business, as opposed to just an awesome special match that kind of exists unto itself entirely yeah definitely and it's funny we keep coming back once again we talked earlier about the the whole idea of the gimmick match is kind of a, a, a heel concept and like i'm instantly thinking of like uh the russian chain match right and it's like do you do you do you really think that like ivan koloff won very many russian chain matches <laughs> like in his run even though it was his match that he like brought to the territory with him it's like, no, we always lost them. It was just that that match was the best showcase for his act. It wasn't necessarily, you know, that it was a, a the idea was that it quote unquote, like gave him an, an unfair advantage. Like, but at the same time, he, he almost never won them. Like that was part of the whole thing. And once again, getting back to the idea of being a heel, like that's great, right? If you have your signature match, it's supposed to give you this big fair advantage and you, you, you never win it. Like that's awesome. <laughs> But that's part of the problem with having a babyface be a specialist in a in a gimmick match, unless it's a submission match, because mm-hmm. then it's just you're a better technical wrestler. But they don't really have any. You have submission specialists, but not submission match specialists. Who do you think is the best outside of Jeff Hardy? Because I think he's pretty much locked in as the best ladder match performer of all time. Who do you have as 
someone where you have to it's good to watch a ladder match to understand his appeal or the trajectory of his career or something like that christian that one's easy i didn't have to think about that for a second christian christian cage uh he is awesome in ladder matches because if you watch a lot of those early ones he gets almost nothing on offense he is mostly just there to facilitate the match and like if you really really want to understand wrestling at a high level like i really think that's the person you should be watching in the multi-man match we brought up daniels earlier and like i always loved in like those big impact multi-man matches you could always like see daniels really I mean, maybe he should have been hiding the strings a little better, but you could definitely always tell that he was the person who was in charge in the match. And I think when you watch Christian in both those earlier Attitude Era uh, ladder matches and then later on throughout the 2000s, he's always someone who really got it with the ladder match. He wasn't out there trying to do too many moves. He was just doing spots that really mattered. And normally he understood that if they were going to win and edge and Christian were often winning in those early matches. Cause I mean, they were once again, they were the chicken shit heels and therefore they were the perfect person to win this match. Right. But like, you know, even in them winning, it was like, it just seemed like, well, how did that guy possibly win? Like all he did was get his ass kicked all match long. And it's just the perfect performance consistently. He does different stuff all the time. Um, you know, and like I said, later on in some of those uh, Money in the Bank matches, you can definitely see him out there directing traffic in a lot of those matches if you've got an eye for that kind of thing. And he, he's just really great to watch during ladder matches. So Christian Cage, amazing ladder match performer. Funny you pick Christian because I, I actually instantly thought of Edge uh, when I was thinking of what to, what to ask because you get Edge watching a ladder match because he is such a spectacular athlete for someone his size and the WrestleMania 17 bump where he spears Jeff off of the ladder while Jeff is hanging on to the tag team titles is the perfect example of that guys edges size did not do that shit. And he was the, and and it's the reason his career was as short as it was, but you saw a, what he was willing to do to impress an audience without making it look pathetic, at least to me, and be the level to which he was willing to put himself on the line for other guys to make them look spectacular. Like, he knew what he was doing in a way... He has such body control and such physical gifts that I think... And it's hard to contextualize him because he's the same size as everybody else, and he works such a safe style for other people. He was kind of notorious for working that super safe WWF, WWE style. But I think those matches are, you see where, like, how that fits into a much larger context of him being incredibly safe in very dangerous matches. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good way of saying it. And yeah, I always think of his uh, his DDT where he puts the person down like perfectly flat, like perfectly parallel to the ground. I uh, I used to razz him a little bit about that uh, as a 10 or so years ago. It drove me a little bit crazy every <laughs> single time. But no, I... But at the same time, it keeps the guy oh, yeah, safe. Yeah. You're kind I, of like, would, like yeah. now you watch it and you're just like, oh, yeah, oh, good oh, yeah, job. Yeah. I, would, I would much rather take, you know, that than uh, than Sammy Callahan's headlock driver or whatever. You know? <laughs> Definitely, certainly. So do you have a thinky this week? You know what? I did have a thinky and, and, and I just could not decide up to the last minute whether I should throw it out there because this person in the last week has, has, has emerged again as being a problematic figure. Um, but I will say, uh, screw it. I will throw it out there is that you should listen to the second half of, uh, 
Kenny on uh, on with uh, with Jim Ross. Uh, that that episode dropped on the fourth. It does take over an hour again to get to the guest. Um, but uh, but but Kenny Omega really once again just uh, what I enjoy listening to him. And once again, I'm a little torn because maybe part of me also wishes that a wrestler was waiting till after he was retired to be having these conversations with us. Um, but he really really is a smart person, and it's interesting to hear him. Uh, talk about his character and the way he interacts with others and the way he builds matches and the way he sees wrestling. He is someone who either positively or negatively, which we'll assess 10, 20, 30 years down the line, is really making major changes to the wrestling business right now. And maybe we're not, maybe because he's not in the WWE, not everybody is appreciating that, but he's in the process of changing the wrestling business right now. So I think that you should really go and uh, listen to him on the July 4 episode of the Jim Ross Report, even though he uh, did business with someone who he shouldn't have done business with. Uh, obviously, that kind of thing is very bad, and I don't condone it. But at the same time, uh, even when people are problematic figures, I still think that there's a lot to learn from them. And maybe I'm saying too much, and you can feel free to edit this out. But like, I, I just feel like uh, it's so easy right now to, to write somebody off as problematic and like put them on the shelf and discount every single thing that they say or do as evil because they have done fundamentally evil things. And while I think it's true that, that bad people tend to be bad people and birds of a feather flock together, et cetera, et cetera, just because someone is problematic, even deeply problematic, doesn't mean that you can't learn from them. And that's what the whole concept of being problematic is. Like when in literary criticism, when you talk about problematic authors, you don't mean shitty authors who are evil people. You mean brilliantly gifted authors whose work is tough to grapple with in our current context because of the way that we view the world. So I don't know why I'm on this soapbox right now, but Kenny Omega, he maybe done a bad, bad thing, uh, definitely. But uh, I still think that you should listen to what he has to say about the wrestling business because he is a really special, different person. Oh, no, I I think it's an important thing to talk about that, like... Yeah, he did a stupid thing, and the more important bad thing he did was talk about it like it like he didn't get weird vibes from the guy. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, he's a nice guy, or whatever. It's like, yeah, like, oh, classic, classic dumb man response. Yeah, and then he responded with like, "I fucked up." Like that. Yeah. No, I thought that his I thought that his second apology was like perfect, and I guess I wish people had maybe just a little more patience for that because like. 20 years ago, that would have, even 10 years ago, that would have been the apology we got. But because of social media and because of the pressure to put something out there as fast as possible, we got the like, oh, I don't know, he seemed like a nice guy or whatever. I had no idea. Which it's like, once again, like when you're looking for the immediate answer, that's the immediate answer. That's part of the problem with social media, especially in the way we deal with prominent people, because we almost want to. And I don't want to say that what he did was okay. I'm not condoning what he did. I'm not condoning how he talked about it initially. But, like, I think we treat people who are famous or we perceive to be famous as, like, special and infallible. And at the same time... Or they ought to be somehow. Yes. Yes. That's a better way to put it is that they should be. They should know better. And it's like, yeah, they might know better. But when, for instance, somebody says, as a father of a daughter... 
what there's there are reasons why they're saying that and those are shitty reasons but it doesn't make them inherently bad people it makes them stupid afraid of people with fear in their hearts like there are he made a mistake he felt weird about it those are the things he said initially and then he thought about it and he was like i can't believe i put it that way because that's not how i feel here's how i actually feel and you have to be willing to accept that if you don't give that opportunity to other people, you cannot expect it yourself. And I think that's where people get lost in whether or not somebody's problematic. It's like, yeah, someone like James Woods is a terrible, dangerous, bad person. Kenny Omega made a really bad mistake. It could have been a lot worse. He apologized for it in a dumb way and then realized he apologized for it in a dumb way, learned from that, and is now a better person for it. Like, I don't know what else you could want from a person other than for him to have not done the thing in the first place. But since time machines don't exist, the best you can get is for someone to learn from a mistake that was a dumb mistake. More so what the guy did was evil and bad. That's the guy that's the tr- like the evil bad person. The guy who threw him a bone without really thinking it through is an idiot who should be publicly shamed for it, you take them out of the stocks at some point. I mean, if he does it again, then fuck him. Like, you fuck up once, it's different. You keep fucking up the same way. It's like, no, you're just a bad person. I am much more bothered by the fact that Jimmy Snuka kept still kept getting work. But we all watch the WWE. Yeah, let's never let's never do this ever again. <laughs> but I know I think it's an important thing to talk about because uh, we stay away from news for the most part. So yeah. I, I, as hard as I can. Did you have anything in particular to pug, plug or pug? Did you have Did you have anything in particular to plug or just the usual stuff? No, just the usual stuff. Follow me on Twitter. Listen to this podcast if you aren't already. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. And uh, let me remind you again about uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. E-T, as in T, as in T for two. That sounded a bit like a C. My apologies. Anyway, you know what it is because I said it a million times earlier. Go check it out. Uh, One to two dollars a month. That is really, I think, an amount that you can afford and that we can take from you without feeling too bad. Yes. Uh, And it would be great just to have uh, the ability to not have to pay out the 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 wazoo for hosting that's basically i'm just trying to cover hosting if i'm being honest and yeah for me you can check me out at uh the nixter that's t-h-e-n-1-c-k-s-t-e-r i may have a decent size announcement on next week's episode but i don't know for sure next week's episode like we mentioned is mystery fiction and um i just wanted to sell it a little bit uh dave you've actually written some mystery fiction for uh, a magazine called mystery weekly correct uh yeah 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 i've had uh, two stories published uh through them in the last mm, year or 14 16 months uh yeah definitely i am a, a mystery writer i am a, a huge fan of mystery fiction uh, both, you know, older stuff like uh, Conan Doyle and Christie, of course, uh, to, to more modern stuff as well. And a huge mystery uh, aficionado, uh, so to speak. And uh, yeah, I've got, I've got two published stories out there. I've got one that's uh, being shopped around to a couple of different places looking for the right publication. And I've got like 
three different mystery stories kind of in production right now, including one that's about pro wrestling. And maybe if there were some more pennies hitting the bottom of the Patreon bucket, maybe I could find a little more time to get that wrestling mystery written. And maybe that would be something that could be like Patreon exclusive or something that listeners of this podcast could somehow get kind of a first look at. That, that would be really cool. So yes, I love mysteries. I'm a mystery author. I'm even writing a fucking wrestling mystery. That's what a terrible nerd I am. Uh, and I, I say that in part to warn you that um, I really only, I don't read. I'm not a reader. I don't believe in reading. It's a communist plot, uh, like fluoride in the drinking water. <laughs> um, so uh, I may be mentioning Castle and Bones, but uh, Dave is going to be um, the star, as he always is, of next week's episode, just to warn you. Um, <laughs> Born that way, baby. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I, I have not been as excited for an episode in a long time. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, and if you did, uh, you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't already. And you can check us out at podbean.com. And as for the rating on iTunes, although we prefer fives and sometimes fours, uh, if you feel so inclined, give us a three. But I swear to the Lord Jesus, if you give us a two or a one, I am going to just look at it and just a single tear, like that Italian guy in that commercial dressed as the Native American, a single tear down my cheek. That's... Uh, that's what it's gonna be. You uh, you talking about uh, you talking about Jay Strongbow? And Aaron Decker said Jeff Hardy was not gonna walk out of here, and he may be right, but again he may be wrong. Oh no, I think he's right. Wait a minute, wait a minute, my paycheck is right. Come on, give it to him. Jeff Hardy trying to fight out of this. He's just got the tear. Oh, he gets a kick in the head. Time's out of here, kid. Make yourself famous. Please get up, Undertaker. Inches away from immortality. Ooh. Oh, God. Ooh. Not one, but two shots to the spine of this kid. Oh. The Undertaker almost out of his own feet. And now he's climbing the ladder. Oh, oh. Jeff Hardy is close. Get it. Get your title. Oh, look out. Come on, kid. You can still do it. One more step. Oh, one more step. With a tilt slam on the top of the ladder, has won one hell of a fight. One hell of a fight. Here is your winner, and still the WWE Undisputed Champion, The Undertaker. Here among the poor, sad, despicable, oppressive, misinformed, we have for you to fight your tongue secure.